0: The real story was the total democratization of knowledge and the fact that everybody has access to all the information in the world. They have a library of Alexandria in their pocket now, right? So that's the real story. So with Bitcoin, we can like make these little straw men about, oh, like this rogue regime is doing X, whatever, good luck. I mean, it's not going to end well for them.
1: There are no borders with Bitcoin, and from the beginning, its disruption has been global. Tune in to Borderless as CoinDesk reporters Anna Badikova and Danny Nelson dissect their top most recent Bitcoin and cryptocurrency stories from around the world. This episode is brought to you by the CoinDesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder that CoinDesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hi, everyone. We're back. Our colleague Lee Quinn had our backs last time and took over this podcast last week. If you missed it, you should definitely listen to her conversation with Bo Sobrado about Bitcoin in Cuba. And now it's the 8th of March, the International Women's Day. So, congratulations to everyone who's celebrating. For this day, we have a very special guest, by the way Alex Gladstein, the Chief Strategy Officer of the Human Rights Foundation. Alex doesn't really need any introduction, I guess. Bitcoiners know him very well. But in case you never heard about Alex, he's a part of the NGO that is supporting human rights movements worldwide, and he is a passionate Bitcoin advocate. So thank you for joining us today, Alex.
0: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Um, And just recently, the foundation awarded four Bitcoin grants to people and organizations developing and promoting Bitcoin, uh, which includes Bitcoin developer Jesse Posner, independent privacy journalist Janine, Lightning Wallet Moon, and open-source incubator Blockchain Commons. Alex, I know you've been working with Bitcoin for a while, and the Human Rights Foundation helped raise money in Bitcoin for movements like the Feminist Coalition in Nigeria and the Belarus Solidarity Fund. But last year you launched your Bitcoin Development Fund, right? Mm -hmm. And this was the second round of grants um, you did early in March.
0: That was our fifth round of grants.
1: Oh, fifth, okay. Yeah, we
0: started it last uh, quarter two, quarter two of 2020.
1: All right, so tell us about this initiative. Something a bit different from what the Human Rights Foundation normally do, like monitoring and mapping the censorship and uh, political oppression around the globe. Mm-hmm. How does this Bitcoin Development Fund fits into what you're doing and what are your goals for it?
0: Sure. You know, we've always uh, supported the progression of technology in the hands of activists to you know, peacefully fight back against their oppressors. Timely that you had BoAS on last week to talk about Cuba that's where I started uh, helping send in outside information into Cuba back in two thousand and seven and eight at the Human Rights Foundation before the internet had really penetrated the island. People had to sequester themselves in their homes and watch movies and discuss them privately in small groups, uh, obviously you know it being a closed information environment and a police state and we saw the dramatic effect of that, and years later we Ended up doing a lot of similar work in North Korea. And we recognized that it was not just important to advocate about freedom of information and privacy, for example, for people to have like this parallel communications and kind of marketplace of ideas that's separate from what the government would allow. So we we not only saw the, the good in sort of campaigning and advocating for people to do that, which is what you mentioned with what we've done in Belarus and what we've tried to assist with in Nigeria and elsewhere. But we really realized that the actual tech itself could use a little nudge too. And over the years, we brought in many technology experts to help North Koreans, for example, who are sending information into North Korea. We did a lot of studies on what was most effective and we helped you know, finance and support what is being done now today, which is our cry from DVDs back in the early 2000s being sent into North Korea. Today, it's like highly sophisticated operations of uh, you know, micro SD cards and terabyte hard drives. And essentially, you know, certain people are like, they have all the content and then they like copy it out on these little tiny confiscation resistant little chips and they, and they hand them out and people can watch them on their little tablets and smartphones. So we've seen a huge amount of technological progression and that's been massive.
1: What kind of content is that?
0: Whether it's K-pop or Korean dramas or Bollywood films or different kinds of music or news reporting from South Korea, it's mainly Korean content that, that Koreans send to North Korea that we assist with, or you know footage of a supermarket or even like a documentary about the Arab Spring or the fall of the Soviet Union, et cetera. So so there's all kinds of different content that goes in. Point is that we've seen like technological progress in the time we've been helping this sort of information and these dialogues get into these places. So similarly with Bitcoin, like we noticed, of course, that it was being used by people under authoritarian regimes, but we saw a need to help with the technology piece as well, Uh, with its privacy, with its usability, with its... The way you can access it with sort of, maybe not like if you don't have an iPhone, like you know, or if you don't have a computer, like how can you access it? So we decided to start a fund where donors give to us different kinds of donors, ranging from, you saw the, the Vinkelvi twins gave through Gemini and Wasabi Wallet gave, and there's been a, a variety of different groups supporting us and there'll, there'll be more that we'll announce soon all kinds of individuals, anonymous people around the world giving Bitcoin to us. They, you know, Basically, most of the Bitcoin development fund is raised in Bitcoin and then doled out in Bitcoin. Some of it's in fiat, but um, a lot of it is, is raised that way. Uh, we get lots of lightning donations. We don't know who they're from. We've gotten more than 13 million Satoshis of lightning donations recently, um, You know, which is wonderful. We will make those donations in Bitcoin to people. What well, we realized is over time that Bitcoin doesn't have a CEO or a board or a company controlling it. It's uh, Development is funded in a sort of patronage model that Nick Carter has talked about, where you have self-interested actors in the space doing it. So mainly like exchanges, for example, and some, you know, you know, generous uh, individuals in the space, like John Pfeffer would be an example of someone who's done a lot of support. And we we wanted there to be another perspective, giving the money out. (laughs) Like, you know, it's wonderful to see the exchanges and individuals doing it, but I don't know what their intentions are. I think they're all great. And it's wonderful. You know, ultimately we got to have some human rights groups and some privacy groups doing it too. And that didn't really exist. I mean, you had some very important development being supported via the DCI at MIT, but really that was about it. Like about a year and a half ago, when we were starting to talk about this in terms of nonprofit space. Now, of course you have Brink, which is great with John Newberry and his folks. And we support Gloria Zhao, who's, who's now working there under John And his colleagues. And then there's Open SATS, which is gonna probably come later this year, which will be more of like a direct peer-to-peer, you can like give to particular developers model, which is great. So we're gonna see more and more in in this space. You're gonna see more universities getting involved, certainly in the next two, three years. We wanted to kind of help jumpstart that and get like the nonprofit activist educational community involved in in supporting the Bitcoin ecosystem. And yes, the grants you just mentioned were our latest effort.
1: I wonder if this idea of supporting the bitcoin environment the infrastructure is popular at all among the non-profits about the ngos like yours if um, if your colleagues feel like you about this topic and are that enthusiastic about bitcoin and supporting it
0: yeah look i mean i'm not going to lie it was not popular you know when we first started doing it we started accepting bitcoin in 2014 some of our donors at the suggestion of some of our donors who were like, we want to give you Bitcoin. So we were like, okay. We really didn't get enough internal interest to do programs on it until the spring of 2017. And that was of course, when the price was starting to go up, it had just broken a thousand, right? For the first time since 2013, right? So people were like interested again. That spring, uh, I believe it had just broken 2000 when we were in Oslo at the Freedom Forum in 2017. And we had done our first ever workshop with activists and Bitcoiners. Over time, people got more interested but look there was a lot of dis- disaffection after the 2017 retail bubble you know later that year especially in 2018 and 2019 it was very difficult to get people interested in bitcoin everybody sort of thought it was like a has been right so we persisted and over time i think yeah my colleagues are are very excited about it now that's for sure we hope to get other human rights groups involved i think that's quite important that this be a global thing that's diverse and that it not just be companies supporting this open source effort.
1: I know that you've been talking about Bitcoin being a human rights tool for a while. But when you think of people who actually are using this tool, right? If we think of these people who might be living in poor countries, in oppressive regimes, they might, you know, really struggle from day to day, they might have their internet and even electricity shut down from time to time. So I'm thinking like... How do you think, you've been talking to a lot of people around the globe about how they use Bitcoin. How they deal with these challenges of Bitcoin, which is one, volatility, which means long-term, your Bitcoin probably going to grow. But if you need money short-term, you can really suffer from volatility. Sure. And if you have no internet, your Bitcoin is basically useless. So my question is, How do you see, from speaking to people in other countries, in its current state, is Bitcoin a really useful tool for people in these conditions?
0: Yes. The short answer is definitely that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. If it wasn't useful, I would be doing something else. I have learned by observation, not by imagination. Uh, I am observing what people are doing and then like, piecing it together and realizing what is happening, which is pretty breathtaking. Um, To tackle the internet thing first, Bitcoin is definitely not useless if the internet goes out. Uh, You know, again, most people today use Bitcoin as sort of like a savings account. And today in West Africa, there's three countries right now where the internet has gone on and off in the past day because the government's been cutting it off due to protests, things like that. It does not affect your Bitcoin. I mean, yeah, it might be harder for you to sell it, but not impossible. Uh, and, And especially we're trying to fund, in fact, one of the countries that had its internet cut off was Senegal. And one of the developers we funded in January was Fode Diop, and he's in Senegal right now, you know, where this is happening. And he's trying to develop a protocol on top of Lightning Network that allows you to do messaging when the internet goes down. So he's leveraging the power of the Bitcoin network, which does not need the internet to work, to try and create a messaging platform that can kind of function during these tough environments. That's the kind of stuff we're very interested in. And, uh, and it's remarkable, I mean, what he's doing. I mean, it's so cool. I mean, there there, there's many other ways that phones can talk to each other without internet access, if you get what I'm saying.
1: It's something about mesh networks.
0: Yeah, of course. I mean, and not just mesh networks, but interoperability between mesh networks. And then eventually you might connect to someone who has internet access. But it's like the guys behind this project used to work at Gotenna. You know, this is like a device that hikers use when they go out in the middle of nowhere with no no internet. They string together these devices and it gives them internet where it wasn't before. So they're, they're the ones who know how to do this, right? So in an urban area, when everything goes down, you may have one person with satellite and then that person daisy chains to everybody else. There's all kinds of ways to do it. Anyway, they're trying to figure this out to make sure that like in urban areas that, that, that do have these, this sort of internet coming on and off thing, that people are still able to communicate and message with each other. And that's possible with the Bitcoin networks, like incentive structure, which is very cool. The second part, volatility. I mean, look, I think people who in Bitcoin for a while, I'll know that over time, the number goes up. Uh, Now, it has setbacks and it goes up and down. But you have to understand that a lot of folks using this as a store of value, their native currency is even worse. It's number go down only, only. I mean, it may go up like once in a while, but usually straight down, right? So you've got people who are used to a reality of number go down their whole life, whether it's in the Philippines or Nigeria or Argentina, God, literally any country that's not a reserve currency. So 87% of the world's population doesn't have property rights or reserve currency to use. So they they are very familiar with number go down over time. And that's where this is just such a game changer for them. They can store their value and their time and energy in something that is not going to just depreciate like, like predictably. And that's been a huge source of inspiration for them, especially in the past year. I mean, yes, you have to think about the fact that every month, every year matters for people. And- In the last year, when these protest movements have been igniting around the world, you know, Bitcoin has 14X in value. I mean, that's pretty tremendous. So, I mean, no fiat currency will ever do that. They could 14X down or they could stay stable, but nothing has the upside of Bitcoin for these folks. So I think the volatility people are well aware of uh, when it's a bear market. Usually what what you would do is just cash if you're receiving Bitcoin as a donation or a payment. If, if you need to spend it and are worried about the volatility, you just cash it out into your local currency. And then you always have that, you know, these peer-to-peer markets exist everywhere. So that's, you know, the volatility, if you're worried about it, you don't have to deal with it. Really, the volatility is a very positive thing going up, you know, for these folks, which is a new concept financially for them.
1: Right. Just following up on what you said, uh, talking to developers, to all these people who are building Bitcoin around the globe, what regions are the most active now, like where people are most excited about building Bitcoin? If you can name such regions or countries.
0: Everywhere. I think that <laughs> obviously Nigeria is like a hotspot for, for a variety of reasons. They have 14% inflation. They have a massive young population that's very connected and they have a terrible corrupt government that's been murdering citizens. So that is a hot spot for sure. Uh, then you have the Indian subcontinents. I mean, Pakistan and India. I mean, usage is exploding, despite the fact that those governments are trying to basically provide disincentives for citizens to use Bitcoin. There is an incredible amount of usage in Latin America, uh, Argentina, for example, Venezuela. Even as you heard last week, Cuba. I mean, obviously, in Eastern Europe, activists are doing stuff they couldn't have done without Bitcoin, you know, as you've done, as you've uncovered in your reporting. And then, of course, in democracies, it's easier to access Bitcoin. It's more straightforward. We can just download Cash App and just withdraw it to our personal account. So, I mean, it's making a massive difference for Americans. Uh, Let's not forget that democracies are not perfect. We have huge financially discriminated communities here. The work of Isaiah Jackson is very interesting to look at, where he's working with Black communities in the United States who have been, again, racially discriminated against with regard to their finances and, and banking and loans and mortgages and things like that. Systematically over the last few decades, you know, he's like, Hey, I can get them involved now in the best performing asset and, and no one can stop them. And everybody else is ignorant about it pretty much. So they can like front run everybody else, which is really cool. And it's something that I'd, I'd love to see. Obviously, Bitcoin's hugely popular, like the Philippines, like was one of the countries where this really, really took off first. So I think it's a global phenomenon. And if there are communities or causes you care about. Now is the time. I mean, really, this is so important to stress.
2: As Bitcoin grows and uh, adoption increases, do you think that governments will be taking the steps that they can to uh, further surveil the networks and perhaps be working with the blockchain tracing companies to move in a way that actually might make it more difficult for people in oppressive regimes to, to act?
0: Definitely. I hope that's a rhetorical question.
2: I know. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it.
0: So yes, there's several things here. And I wrote a piece in Quillette that got picked up by Zero Hedge, which I recommend you all check out called Can Governments Ban Bitcoin? Look, we have to think about why they haven't stopped Bitcoin yet. It's a trillion dollar asset class now, $1,000 a coin. It's available in every country on earth. Why didn't they stop it? I think it's quite clear that from the beginning, even 2013, 14, I think governments knew what this was. They just weren't really sure what to do with it, right? And it's kind of like it doesn't have a single point of failure. So what to do, what to do, what to do. So in that essay, I kind of went through all the different attacks that have happened on the network, including the huge one in May 2017, led by Chinese billionaire miners in Silicon Valley called Segwit2x, where they had 83 plus percent of the hash power globally. And they tried to basically make Bitcoin less decentralized, failed miserably. The users fought them off. It was amazing. So Bitcoin's displayed a lot of resilience. It will continue to get attacked though. Probably not on the technical level is the conclusion of my thesis. I think it's going to be at the regulatory level uh, through taxation, different laws, restrictions, surveillance, as you mentioned. So that's why we're doing what we're doing with the Bitcoin Development Fund. The first gift we made was to Chris Belcher for coin swaps, which he's now like really pushed along. So my hope is that within a year, you can have like an open source wallet, like a blue wallet or a moon wallet where you can choose to do a coin swap, right? So this means that like the blockchain spies will have no freaking idea what's going on already all of it is assumptions, right? All blockchain analysis is assumptions because your name is not in the database. Coinbase can't even really know that that's mine. They can like assume it's mine, but what if I was making a payment? What if I was withdrawing to buy something on an internet store? Everything's an assumption on the blockchain. And the more this technology comes into being, privacy technology, the less accurate those assumptions are. So even today, we have forward privacy. Think about it this way. You have a bank account with Bank of America or Santander or whatever, right? They know and the government knows that you have $1,000 in your account. It's KYC completely. But then you go to the ATM and you withdraw the cash. Well, they don't know what you do with that money after that. They have no real idea. I mean, that's called forward privacy, right? Same thing with Bitcoin. You're going to have people in emerging markets around the world with Paxful accounts. Paxful has to you know, abide by laws, regulations, KYC, okay? But now they're going to add Lightning. OK, so you can withdraw your Bitcoin via the lightning network and then hop, 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 hop. No one knows what happens on the other side. So you're getting forward privacy now with Bitcoin through lightning and through equal output coin joins, which now are on phone apps. You can just see where this is going. It gets so much more powerful. So the answer is yes. Governments are going to try to surveil, stop, regulate. I think they're going to fail.
1: I actually was about to ask this question maybe Play a little bit of devil's advocate because I know your privacy is very important for you. You're not a fan of blockchain tracing companies, no. to say the least. If we can imagine an absolutely like theoretical, imaginary, maximally atrocious situation when, mm-hmm. uh, let's imagine we know that some rogue state, something like North Korea maybe, is using Bitcoin mining to fund the construction of a new concentration camp. Let's say we discover that and the world knows for sure which Bitcoin Mm -hmm. addresses are selling Bitcoin to fund that. Okay. Would you call for these Bitcoin addresses to be like blacklisted everywhere? Would you think that the crypto community would have to absolutely ban those addresses and never interact with them?
0: Well, first of all, that's impractical. There's always going to be someone who's willing to buy your Bitcoin. Second of all, no, there should be no censorship on the network. Bitcoin is not responsible for the construction of that concentration camp. The evil North Koreans are. So even though the description, what you have mentioned, has not happened, it's worth dwelling on. Bitcoin is very scarce, very rare. We have this thing called like Gresham's Law. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's like an economic theory that says bad money drives out the good. It's very unlikely that like they're going to use Bitcoin to do that. They're going to use their own currency that they mint to do that stuff because they can just print it. Right. And it devalues over time. But.
1: UN just said that North Korea probably used the cyber hacks to fund the nuclear weapons. So this is w- where this, uh, you know, imaginary situation comes from. That's
0: complete speculation. We have no idea. Rogue states are absolutely using Bitcoin today. North Korea, Venezuela, all of them, probably. Iran, for sure. Uh, the crazy part is, they don't know what they're doing. They are aiding and abetting a very powerful freedom tool. And the people that these governments assign, like North Korea has like cyber units. So they hack South Korean Bitcoin exchanges and I think other cryptocurrencies too. And then they steal them and then they sell them in China. They're not hodlers. (laughs) They're not like holding their Bitcoin. Let's be real here.
1: But this is a lifeline to these rogue states coming. No, 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 way, no. Ca- no,
0: no, no, no. Cash is their life. USD is their lifeline. This is a tiny fraction of the way that they sustain themselves. Tiny, tiny fraction. But either way, I would love it if they thought it was a lifeline. Trust me, because the bureaucrats that the government assigns to do this stuff have to learn about what Bitcoin is. And then all of a sudden, at the high levels of the administration in North Korea, you have all these people who realize there's money the government doesn't control. Okay, so this is like a virus that like eats inside and erodes the power structure. Um, Bitcoin is not going to be very friendly to authoritarian governments in the future. It's not going to be very friendly to waste, to murder, to war. These things are hugely expensive and the population doesn't want them. And it's going to be massively disincentivized in a Bitcoin world. So that's one of the main reasons I support Bitcoin so much is because it's pushing us, I believe, in the future towards a world where there's less of this stuff.
1: I guess you're very optimistic of the human nature. No, just,
0: just no brutally realistic, brutal realism here.
1: But the idea of Bitcoin eating the rogue regimes from yes. inside is really cool. I must say that. Well, think
0: about it. How does the CCP build its concentration camps in Xinjiang? They print RMB to do so. They can do that. They can print as much RMB as they want. They're of an isolated economy. We don't know what their actual economic growth rates are. We never do. They can't print Bitcoin. So- You know, it's like something that that gives power to the citizens, the citizens all of a sudden have power over the government. This has not happened before really in this way. So, you know, again, Bitcoin is this powerful human rights tool that shifts power back to the individual at the expense of the government. Same as the printing press and the internet and public key encryption. Yes, governments can benefit from the internet and public key encryption, and they benefited from the printing press, of course, to spread their propaganda and all kinds of stuff. But that would be missing the forest for the trees. The real story was the total democratization of knowledge and the fact that everybody has access to all the information in the world. They have a library of Alexandria in their pocket now, right? So that's the real story. So with Bitcoin, we can like make these little straw men about, oh, like this rogue regime is doing X, whatever, good luck. I mean, it's not going to end well for them.
1: And this is a very cool note to, to wrap this conversation, I sure. guess. Thank you so much for taking time to joining us. Uh, it's been great talking to you hope to see more people and initiatives uh supported by your bitcoin grants good luck with thank you
0: it's been a lot of fun hope to come on next time
1: (laughs) yes please
0: (laughs) okay take care
1: thank you alex bye Bye, guys okay this was an exciting chat there is actually so much things to ask alex about he's been studying bitcoin adoption and uh, bitcoin usage around the globe and uh I really hope that we can have him more on this podcast in the future. He's a great speaker. Let's talk a bit about like some other news, following up on what we just were talking about. Rogue states, including Iran, in this ever-present topic of our conversations, regarding the international sanctions. Now, the think tank that is linked to the Iranian president uh, Rouhani said that Iranians should be mining Bitcoin to skirt sanctions. And this Iranian Presidential Center for Strategic Studies says, as the newly extracted Bitcoins are not easily traceable, despite the pressure of sanctions on the country, domestic economy actors can use newly extracted cryptocurrencies, which are preferable to existing Bitcoins, on international exchanges, So I guess these pro-presidential experts in Iran are real cypherpunks.
2: Yeah, they really are. They're saying, look, this is the way of the future. This is how we're going to get around sanctions. And you should go after it. And what's really striking to me is that, you know, in the world of rogue states, we've got, you know, North Korea, Iran, Venezuela. Just yesterday in Venezuela um a politician in the i guess the their equivalent of parliament went on national tv saying that Venezuela should turn to digital currencies as a way to break the US hegemony and to work with other states like Iran and China and Russia in kind of implementing a digital currency system that would allow them all to move around the United States so right there you see two different threads that tie together in this world of rogue states turning to Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, so that's interesting that these states, like the heavily sanctioned state, think that Bitcoin can make them stronger. And Alex was arguing that actually it's going to make them weaker and like destroy them from the inside because it's like a a virus of freedom and the best in human nature or, or the worst in human nature that still works for good. Anyway, I'm very curious to think how it actually works out. What role Bitcoin actually plays for them? Let, let's see what happens.
2: Yeah, I mean the, the technology is it's neither good nor bad, but anyone who has an agenda can use it for their own gain, and so that's what we're seeing with these different states. At least saying that they should take steps, take advantage of it.
1: Sometimes it doesn't really matter what position a government takes on cryptocurrencies, like for example, our colleague Sandali Handagama just ran this great story about Egypt. So uh, in Egypt, you officially cannot buy or trade cryptocurrencies, like there is a religious ban, a fatwa against it, and people can really be arrested or punished otherwise. But Bitcoin trading is on the rise, and between 2019 and 2020, the local bitcoins volume went up 100%, at least on one single exchange, it's a UK-based exchange, CX. Between December and January, the trades from Egyptian users went up 400%. So it's like, is there a ban or not?
2: Yeah, I, when we're talking about Egypt, I do think about, you know, that people say that really the only way to actually ban Bitcoin is to shut down the internet. And of course, Egypt did shut down the internet uh, once, I think in 2013, or around the time of the Arab Spring, the uh, military and the government completely shut down the uh, internet pipelines going into the country. And so nobody could communicate. Now in that world, you can't use Bitcoin. And I doubt they're actually they're going to take that same step again to enforce a ban, but it, it does make you think how would a government actually go about disabling Bitcoin? This is how.
1: Well, yeah, but, but this way it effectively will disable itself as well, because nothing gonna work without yes. internet in any country, I guess, now
2: so the hottest fat in crypto right now, I think, is <laughs> undoubtedly NFTs. At least that's definitely the case here in the US. But I know that around the world, people are selling artwork for millions of dollars, uh, hundreds of thousands of fans of, for example, the N- NBA are turning to non-fungible tokens to uh, trade digital collectibles. This really is a fad that is crossing over from crypto and getting the normies involved, which is not something that you can say every day. Uh, so uh, Anna, have you, have you uh, been speculating on any fancy pieces of artwork recently?
1: I don't, and I'm on the bandwagon of this hype train. I'm still not quite sure um, why people would, um, you know, be so excited about it. But I must tell you that I just yesterday, I think, I thought the term non fungible token on a mainstream Russian media. So just the fact that like normal people gonna see these words and think of what the hell it is, <laughs> is, is kind of big. I, I think you are about to get into this game. Like, Tell me why it gets you pumped.
2: Well, I, I guess to to start more broadly before I get into my personal uh, pumpage, I feel like the, the whole idea of uh, what makes an NFT valuable is, I guess, think about the Mona Lisa. There's only one Mona Lisa and it has value because everyone knows that there's only one. But you could have prints of the Mona Lisa, maybe in a limited edition, and those prints have value because you know that there's only X amount of them. Well, if you're going to have the equivalent in a digital form, you need some way of making sure that you know that this is one of 10,000 or this is one of 5,000. And in that, you can actually use a blockchain to prove that provenance. So that's kind of the back end to it. Why I'm so excited I've been trying for days now to get into the NBA top shot scene. Uh, This is a Dapper Labs collaboration with the National Basketball Association. It's basically a collection of digital baseball cards or I guess basketball cards that show 12 second videos of players making dunks and assists. I mean, it's really you could find all this stuff on YouTube. It's not hard to find. But the hype machine around this is, is booming and, and players are getting involved and everyone's talking about it on basketball Twitter. It's really difficult to avoid. And the fact that it's so difficult to actually uh, acquire only uh, increases the, my desire to, to jump in.
1: So, so I guess it really plays into the human instinct of owning things. And like even though you probably can see this same stuff on YouTube or whatever, you want to own a piece of it, like claim a piece of it. You know, it's. I think it can be a global phenomenon because like people from, people from Russia, people from Japan can go and buy those basketball NFTs, which is, it's not that easy to travel around the globe for the auctions to buy some pieces of art like you need to really be in this industry and have resources to to visit all these auctions. With NFTs, you can be wherever in the world, still buy all this stuff for some reason.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's really nothing special whatsoever about these. You can see this video of LeBron James doing something cool on YouTube. The only difference really between this uh, Top Shot and a video on YouTube is the fact that the Top Shot has a serial number attached to it, And maybe they made the video a little bit shinier. Other than that, it's still just a video of LeBron James doing something cool. But here you've got people paying literally hundreds of thousands of dollars. I think that the number one account on Top Shot has $54 million in cards right now.
1: Oh my God. Uh, Well, I I hope you have fun. I hope you (laughs) don't spend too much money on that at least. I guess that's it for this week, right? Thank you everyone for listening. Please subscribe to Coindesk Podcasts and let us know how you like Borderless. Let us know if you enjoyed the show. We have an email address, borderless at coindesk.com.
2: Let us know your favorite NFTs. We accept donations of NFTs at that email address.
1: That's. I don't even know if, if that's the case. That's. Not- well, if if we
2: don't sell it, then we can certainly keep it.
1: We're like walking on thin ice here, uh, Danny. <laughs> so, you, you've been listening to Borderless. I'm Anna Baidakova from Moscow, Russia.
2: I'm Danny Nelson, soon to be fired.
1: <gasps> Hope not. Soon to soon to be NFT billionaire. So, yes.
2: they'll they'll be they'll burn me and put me on the blockchain like they did with that Banksy artwork.
1: We should absolutely do that. See you all next week. Bye.
0: You've been listening to Borderless, part of the CoinDesk Podcast Network. By subscribing to one feed with your favorite player, you'll get free access to all the shows from the editorial team at CoinDesk. Each focused on a particular niche perspective or ongoing discussion within the world of cryptocurrency. This episode featured Anna Badakova and Denny Nelson with special guest Alex Gladstein with an announcement by Lilla
2: Ledesma. Today's show is produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau, with music by Cody Martin. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review
0: on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service and talk to us directly via email at podcasts at coindesk.com.